Hello, and welcome to the Working Tools Masonic Podcast, where today we will be interviewing Brother Bill Overy on the connection between Freemasonry and the Knights Templar. Ladies and gentlemen, brethren all, welcome to the Working Tools Podcast, a casual conversation around Freemasonry. First, it's important to note that our thoughts and opinions are our own and do not reflect those of our Grand Lodge or respective craft or concordant bodies. Please connect with us and ask questions via our website at theworkingtoolspodcast.com. Today on the Working Tools Podcast, we have our three quarters of our usual crew here today. We have very worshipful brother David Colbeth uh, from here in Washington, where I, a very worshipful brother Matthew Apple, am also located. And our, our brother to the north, uh, worshipful brother Stephen Chung from the Grand Lodge of British Columbia in the Yukon. Unfortunately, uh, our other usual host, Trevor, couldn't be with us this evening, but we have our special guest, brother Bill Overy, who's uh, also from British Columbia in the Yukon and is on the uh, Grand Lodge Education Committee there. Uh, brother Bill, welcome. Very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, today is the sort of we're going to working on our series of talking about the myths of Freemasonry, some true and some not true. And today's topic will be um, on the connection between Freemasonry and the Knights Templar. And I guess my the first obvious question is, uh, Brother Bill, how did you how did you get into this? Where did your your connection to this topic come from? Well, I, I've always been interested in history of Freemasonry and the subject of the story of the Knights Templar and their relationship to Freemasonry has probably caused me to be questioned more than any other subject in these positions that I've had. Besides that, this subject differs depending on who you talk to. So as an amateur historian, I will try to put it into perspective and give you the facts as I researched it. It was in 1986-87 when my daughter gave me a copy of the book, The Holy Blood and Holy Grail. This coincided with the delightful year of working in the Languedoc area of southern France, primarily writing manuals for the Fokker 50 and Fokker 100 aircraft, and in my spare time writing two books. One was about my hunt for the Holy Grail and the other, The Templar Connection to Freemasonry. The company was located in Toulouse in southern France, and at this point, I would like to point out it was southern France, not the south of France. The south of France is casinos, naked women on the beaches, and the trendy set of people uh, throughout the world. Southern France is provincial, the best wine, some of the friendliest people in the world that I've ever come across. For this podcast, I will keep my information on the Knights Templar, and their relationship to Freemasonry. And so I ended up my year with a draft copy of my book on the Knights Templar and their relationship to Freemasonry. I was given the name of a professor in medieval history who was also a brother who was kind enough to review my work. And I'm sorry, but I can't remember his name. I know that he was in, I think it was McGill University in Quebec. Um, and so I end, ended up my year with a draft copy of the book for the Knights Templar. On my return to Canada, I was given the name of this professor. It was kind enough. He did actually do it. He did a very good re review. Um, 
and I received the copy back and there was a large sections were marked in red and the note from him saying um, and as a historian you must only use documented information not conjecture um, from your work it showed you never found any def definite connection between the Knights Templar and Freemasonry which is highly surprising as nobody else has ever found any either. I did finish the book on the Holy Grail, but with a slightly different slant, but I learned a lot about being a better historian. So having said that, if anybody wants my other book, The Hunt for the Holy Grail, I would be happy to send you a free copy. I never got rid of the original text and notes on the Templars and the Freemasons, and much later, in fact, when I retired, I decided to review it once more. I did a paper on the research, and basically, this is the result of my endeavours. So first, I will go to the facts. Okay? The okay I, if I may interrupt just real quick, Bill, I, should, I wanted to clarify in the beginning, and I forgot, that we're talking about the Knights Templar like the European guys on horseback wearing armor Knights Templar, not the Knights Templar that are an ex part of the York Rite uh, system of bodies, just to, to clarify. Not, not in case Masonic, anyone... no. This is, this is totally the Knights Templar as they existed in the southern France, big chunks of the Mediterranean, and also, of course, on the site of Solomon Temple. The ones that are supposed to have all the jewels, right? They're the ones that had all the money and everything, and nobody got any of it. Go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to make sure our, our listeners knew which Knights Templar we were talking about. So, yeah. This Sorry. is the actual Knights Templars that were existing in southern France where they started. And they went back and then finished up in England and Scotland. And um, all these stories then started. It's right. nothing right. to do, although the Demolay is obviously a name that's used and they you see the um, the Masonic um, Templars. Um, they look like the, the, shall we say, the fighting division, the officer class of the, the Templars. The other Templars were slightly different. They were dressed much, much more easily recognizable. But the white ones are the ones of the actual Templars that were the head of the, the fighting, the, the officer class, shall we say, of the regiment. Thank you. Right. The Knights Templars were formed about A.D. 1119, just after the First Crusade. They weren't there for that. When a French nobleman, Hugh de Paines, collected eight of his relatives, who were also knights, and formed the order. They lived in the Languedoc area of southern France, a little place called Rennes-le-Chateau, that we have spent some very interesting days hunting through. Their original mission was to protect the pilgrims on their journey to visit the holy places and King Baldwin of Jerusalem allowed them to set up their headquarters on the Temple Mount. This was reputed general area where Solomon built his temple and they were lodged in the Aqua Mosque which was assumed to stand on the actual site of the Solomon's temple. Before long they became known as the poor fellow soldiers of Christ and of the Templar of Solomon, which was eventually shortened to the Knights Templar. 
And for the next nine years, very little was heard of the order in the Knights of the Knights Templar until 1129, when they were officially sanctioned by the Church of Rome. They then started a fundraising campaign in Europe where they asked for donations of money, land, or noble-born sons to join the order, and they implied that donations would help to defend Jerusalem from the Muslims and ensure that the charitable giver would have a place in heaven. They were criticized at first because religious men should not bear arms, but their patron, a leading churchman at the time, stated it was a just war which allowed taking up the sword to defend the innocent and the church from attack. So he legitimized the Templars and they became the first warrior monks of the Western world. In 1139, more powers confirmed on the order by Pope Innocent II, who issued the papal bull that stated that the Knights Templar could pass freely through any border, owned no taxes and were subject to no one's authority except that of the Pope. Of course, not all Knights Templars were warriors. Most of its members were business members and they used to acquire resources which could be used to fund and equip the small percentage of members who were fighting on the front, the front lines. There were three classes within the order. The highest class was the Knight, which is the one we all know about, and they wore white robes and with the big red cross. These were the mounted leading fighters that today we would call the officers. The second was the priest class who wore green robes and they were similar to the modern day military chaplains and conducted all religious duties, but they also did re the record keeping and most important ran the financial and business empire of the Knights Templar. As the years passed, many of the third group were, oh, sorry, the third group was the, con the common soldiers. And they were mounted, the same as the, the knights, but, but these were, wore a black or a brown um, dress, and they were partly garbed in chain mail or plate mail, and they held many positions, including guards, stewards, or squires. So they were like the, the basic army that we'd have in modern day and modern day fighting. As the years passed, many of this third group were no longer needed because the war in Jerusalem um, went down and they either joined other religious groups or joined the French armies during the 20 years of the Albigean Crusade um, when the Pope tried to stamp out the Cathar religion in southern France. So the Templars, who had started as an order of poor monks, expanded, and the priest class, that's the center group, formed a large international infrastructure, and many people used them as a kind of bank. In fact, they came up with the idea of using checks where cash and gold wasn't actually exchanged except on paper, like we do today in, um, in, the, um, in our banking. The financial power became so substantial that eventually the majority of the members were devoted not to combat, but to the economic pursuits. And so we moved to 1150, 
and the original mission of guarding pilgrims had changed into a mission of guarding their valuables and they became the early precursors of modern um, modern banking as the 1200s came in to an end they owned large tracts of land in europe and had built churches and castles and owned many farms and vineyards as well as being involved in manufacturing and import and export in 1292 jacques de Delmonet, who was to be the last grand master took office and in 1298 he led the templars on a brief but unsuccessfully campaign in the Middle East that decimated the fighting elite. The current Templar Knights and the last Templar position in the Middle East was at last lost to the Muslims. This meant that the Templars became an order with no clear purpose anymore, but they still had enormous financial power and this created a very unstable situation. King Philip of France mistrusted the Templars as they had declared its desire to form its own state within a state and located in the Languedoc area of the southeastern France, which was basically where I was doing my job. The Crusades had made King Philip poor and he was not happy with the situation where the Templars were institutionally wealthy, they paid no taxes and had a standing army with no papal degree which could move freely through all European borders even without the Crusades in the Holy Land, they were left with no battlefield. King Philip decided this could not continue and at, and at dawn on February the 13th of October 1307, scores of French Templars were simultaneously arrested by agents of King uh, Philip and executed. In this response, this public pressure, the Pope instructed all monarchs in Europe to arrest all Templars and seize their assets. And in 1312, Pope Clement V issued an edict officially dissolving the Templars. In 1314, Jacques de Malay, who was the last Grand Master of the Knights Templar, was burned at the stake, his ashes ground up and dumped into the Seine to leave no relics behind. In France, hundreds of Templars, Templars were rounded up and arrested. But the extensive archives of the Templars, with the records of all their business holdings and financial transactions, were never found. These more than likely were spirited away by the priest class who had shipped into the background, removing the financial and business empire. And so then the theories started. The stories that we've all heard about, what they did, where they went. And um, is there any questions? I'd like to carry on. With the next section, if you're happy. I, it's curious that even though they were beat by the Muslims, they retained their wealth. Well, the they were based. The, the money was in the south of France, in the Languedoc, at a place called René Le Chateau. And so they were only fighting in um, the Holy Land. So... If they wiped all the all the ones in the white white shirts out, the money was still stable in one place, and obviously they were all very. They weren't dressed like Templars. Um, I I um, probably th you think that maybe they didn't even know they were Templars, but they were definitely 
um, the ones with the money and how it all worked. Um, the other soldier crowd, they they got nowhere to fight, so they weren't being paid anymore. So most of them joined the French army and uh, were against the Templars. And and large members, large groups of the members, uh, the Templar knights were killed by the battle when um, Jacques de, de Malay actually had the fight. He lost and the Muslims don't take prisoners. And there was no idea that they would take princes. So the cream of the Knights Templar that were on that campaign um, were wiped out. As simple as that. And so that campaign was primarily to continue to protect the pilgrims as they were traveling to the Holy Land? Yeah, that's right. They wanted to take back the land yeah. that the, um, uh, the Muslims had taken. But they were pretty vicious fighters. But since they didn't have the money with them, they retained and the lands, of course. But so the Muslims didn't advance to southern France at all to try to obtain the funds. They just no. interesting. They they were only interested in Jerusalem. Yeah. And as long as they kicked everybody out of there, sure. they weren't interested even in any sort of <laughs> movement across the Mediterranean. I think some of them eventually did go into Spain, but it was only a a short time. And nothing to do with the Templars whatsoever, you know. So is your second part here now the connection between masonry and... <laughs> and so the, yeah, what I'm going to go to the second part is to tell you where all the theories are. Yeah. And I took and wrote them all down and I got as many answers as I could. And that is what the next section is about with the start of the theories and the stories that we all know so much about. Excellent. One story was that many of the Templars had used a fleet of ships to escape arrest in France, and they took their treasure with them, leaving just before they were arrested. Well, where did they go? One story, but they left for North America and buried their treasure on Oak Island. Probably seen the television program in Nova Scotia. While others went to Rhode Island, USA, and even built a tower there known as the Newport Tower. I don't know if you American gentlemen have ever been there, but it's there. But it was carbon dated in 1993 after I visited it. And it was found that it was built in 1680. It got nothing to do with the Templars at all. Uh, I looked more into these ships that they um, had and tried to find a, um, anybody with any records of the shipping because most ship, shipping and uh, area had very good records and i uh, got contacted a helen uh, historian called helen nicholas nicholson who agreed that the templars did use ships to carry personnel people pilgrims supplies across the mediterranean but the port records still show they still exist and they still show that the um they were all small ships there was not really any fighting ships there was a, I think they had four what they called warships, but um, they were all small transport vessels with a very shallow draft. They would have been suited for only use in the, um, the shallow waters of the continental shelf and would not even be able to carry enough water to be at sea for a very long time. So the Templars fled to anywhere they could hide. And one of the main places that they went to was England. 
they soon established themselves and obviously the money was with them as they built at least 26 temples the main one being the one in temple in london it is still containing the remains of some of the templar knights not very many when you think how many there were at the start um but it was badly damaged in the german blitz during the second world war and it has since been restored back as best that they can some went to scotland which is also another one of the theories and stories we know about where they did put a headquarters in a place called would you believe temple in midlothian but many appeared to remain in isolated groups and operated as landlords and bankers and these was where the ones were handling the money so that continued on and it was um about 200 years later in 1534 the reformation occurred in england and henry the eighth was declared as the supreme head of the church of england and all the english church properties passed under his control and that included all the templar ones as well nobody could run a church except him one of the thing you must remember in this period when we've got now the Templars, they've got down to smaller groups. Um, most of the Knights would have died. And all you've got was the banking crowd. And at this period in our history, um, the, the Masons, they were just um, people, how can you say? They're just builders. They wouldn't have even talked to anybody of the, the uh, group with the white the white um, aprons and the and all that thing they would have talked maybe to the um uh, the second group uh because they had the money and they were bankers they were they were out of this fighting thing and they were a totally different thing they never did have the white gowns anyway many of the members of the roman catholic church fed at that moment and they took many documents and records with them and for a long time, a lot of people thought, ah, they've taken all the Templar records with them. They didn't. Henry was not a fool. And it turned out all the important financial records were kept in England, much to the delight of later generations of family historians. And uh, you weren't allowed access, in fact, into the, um, the British section of their archives until about, well, it must have been about seven years ago that they were, and a friend of mine was, because uh, I, I was a family historian as well, he was one of the lucky peoples that went into there and he said, I don't know what they hit them for. All the things like the marriages, births and deaths, it says, um, Joan married Fred in some village, but it didn't put any surnames in, the surnames were missing. All the financial records didn't go. None of the wills went. So the land track sections could carry on exactly the same. So I was one of the um, generations of uh, family historians that could take a lot of benefit from that. One thing you must remember, the period in history, the Masons were just one of the working craft. And as such, they would not have been even on talking terms for the higher group of Masons, of uh, uh, Templars. They just wouldn't have been talking. Any social, uh, social association would have been totally unthinkable in that sort of generation. 
Another interesting building is the well-known Rosslyn Chapel. While a fascinating architectural site, it was not built to 1484 and appears to have no Templar connection, despite many attempts to make them as such. Mind you, it would probably have been built by the operative masons in Scotland, many who were sure to work now that the period of building the large cathedrals was coming to an end. So what I did was I went to the, um, uh, the person that was in charge of the, uh, the, the chapel and also to the one in Rhode Island, and I asked the same question to both of them, what documentary proof have you got that the site had a Templar connection? And the answer from both of them was almost the same. None, but don't knock it. The story brings in the tourists. I must admit, I learned a lot about uh, being a better historian. And if there's any questions now, I'd be very happy to answer them. That's a, that's a great story, <laughs> Bill. That's great. <laughs> I, I love that comment at the end about just keep quiet. <laughs> <laughs> So, so it's interesting that is is it possible whether you I mean I guess the stories are true about the Knights Templar and the the original Knights Templar is it possible that they kind of scattered and didn't all go to one spot didn't didn't all go to England didn't all go to Scotland or all go to North America that they all just said shook their hands and said we're out of here. Well, I think most of them did. A large number did go to England. The fact they built twenty six temples. In, uh, um, in England, they weren't all in London, and Scotland had got a very strong feeling, but then they were always very strong with the French, the Scottish people were. And, uh, but when I went to the temple, of course they were taken over by Henry VIII back in 1400 and, and what, and he didn't accept anything. Everything came to him. He took all the documents, the papers, but by this time, I should think the Jewish um, people that were in England and the, the uh, second level of Knights Templar were businessmen. They had money, they had land, and they, were, they could lend money. The Jewish probably got in with, in with them on that. I don't know. I couldn't find anything definite because the money disappeared. But whatever happened, they never got no money. So Nobody how, got the money except themselves. It was kept within them. So how did the Freemasonry connect with the, the myth of the Knights Templar then? Is it because there was it was so prominent in England and that's where we, we all kind of agree that Masonry probably started and mm -hmm. it just was so prevalent there and they adopted the, the ideas and the, the myth? Well, if you think about it, um, the the masons if we go back to the free the freemasons of the stonemasons the earliest documents are probably um i forget what the name of the king was but he was the one that brought england together and he probably produced a book very similar to the regis poems which is the anglo-saxon copy that is readily available all over the place now and uh there was nothing, anything at all that involved anything like um, joining any other group. So I assume that the Masonic connection um, to the things is the, um, the Knights Templar that are, they wear the white 
group. I don't know what they are. I don't, I've, I've never been very good on all of the all, things. And of course, the Demolé um, is the, the youngsters group. Well, when I mentioned the fact that, yeah, he killed off all the good guys because he tried to fight a war that wasn't winnable. And of course, they all got, how he got away, I don't know, but he, he did, he got away, but was executed shortly afterwards. You know, it's, it, 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 it kind of find it uh, a little bit interesting that, that, you know, you've actually done the research and homework on it and, and disproven the myth that, that they were part of masonry to begin with. Um, yet, I remember several years ago attending a lodge in the area where a brother who, a brother had gone and, and visited Roslyn Chapel and brought back a whole bunch of pictures and stories and, and things that he was told by uh, the people at, at Roslyn. Your right, church, yes. Right, yeah. I spoke to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and yet, you know, their whole, I mean, the stories were incredible and the architecture and the pictures were great, right? And hmm. how he related it to everything, right? But now to find out that it's, you know, completely debunked, it's like, hmm. Well, of course, it's still a fantastic building. Um, the um, Angela Branches pillar, for example, whether it's a, a good, really an Angela Branches um, thing or not, it's a delightful piece of architecture. And you can imagine at that period in the history of um, both England and Scotland, who were both into masonry, it was there. It, they they did something. It was really attractive, um, but the Templars weren't involved with it. There was also a lot of um, talk at the time where the Templars. I think it was um, Robert the Bruce when he won that battle on the in Scotland. He only did it because of the Freemason, uh, the, because of the Knights Templar. Well, I don't think so. The Knights Templar didn't know how to fight on that fight. And that battle was a definitely a, a Scottish way of fighting, and they didn't use any horses. And where the Knights Templar didn't do any fighting without horses, even a common soldier had a horse. So, yeah, you could probably stretch it a bit, but I think Robert the Bruce would have actually won anyway. I didn't mention that bit, because there's only so many things you can mention, you know. Yeah. Yep. The the um the the theories between of the connections definitely there are a lot of them out there, but it seems they all well, in my humble opinion, rely on you know well, if this guy and that guy you know were in the same room at the same time, which we have no proof of, but you know, and they're all it's uh it's good to hear from a a knowledgeable person such as yourself that you know. No, just no. <laughs> There's not a not a connection there as much as the the romantic side of us might wish it was so. Yeah. The, the historical side says that no. even if they even if they um, the Templars had survived to say the time, um, say the middle of the 1600s, um, they wouldn't have been wearing white coats, white <laughs> dress, and uh, they wouldn't be proud of the fact they were Templars. Because, and if they did, and they tried to keep that station of life, they would not have talked to somebody as low as a Mason. 
because the Freemason was just an ordinary tradesman, one of thousands that if you took took London when they after the fire of London, um, they were the main one then. And uh, but they would never would never have even you don't talk to the king, you know. Mm -hmm. And they what effectively they were trying to be. Well, with that, we're we're about running out of time. So, uh, Brother Bill, thank you very much for your your uh, your presentation here today. It was it was definitely illuminating. Thank you. And I hope it's got people thinking. Yeah. <laughs> careful with that. Well, careful with that wording. That's a whole other topic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, with that, we uh, we thank you for listening to the Working Tools Masonic Podcast on behalf of David and Stephen and the, the absent Trevor and myself. Uh, thank you all for tuning in, and thanks again, Brother Bill. Goodbye. Good night. Thank you.